first off, you are by uh, called by many a multi instrumentalist mm -hmm. in that within the course of a show you will bounce from guitar to violin to cello to harmonica to dobro to everything in between it seems what drives you to pursue <laughs> multiple instruments uh good question but i i a, a truly honest answer is that growing up, I grew up in California. I'm native of California, from Santa Cruz originally. And my dad worked the oil fields by day, but he was a country musician. And so the instruments were around, and he had me, before I could walk, he was teaching me chords on the ukulele, you know. So I kind of grew up playing from an early age, and that helps as far as learning different instruments. It's like learning languages. Uh, it's easier to soak up when you're youthful, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, I'm not anymore, obviously. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so there was that, and but all, but growing up, you know, it was I. It wasn't the greatest childhood, I'm, you know, honestly. So music was my refuge. It was an escape. It was like it didn't matter, you know, if anybody liked me or how ugly I was or any of that stuff. It's like music. You create your own world. So I gravitated towards it so much that that's, that's kind of all I did, hmm. and. Um, so one thing led to another, and, and I and my dad played guitar and banjo, and all these instruments were around. So I was fooling around on all the different instruments, and um, and then something amazing happened, and uh, it was called the British Invasion. The Beatles came out, and it went from you know like well everybody wanted to have a band all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. right? and I'm in that age bracket. When the Beatles came out, it was like I was just the right age for like hey. Let's start a band. And hey, the McPhee kid, he already knows how to play. Let's get him in our band. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I went from kind of being an outcast, honestly, to where it's like, oh, people wanted me to be in their bands. And mm. there's like, hey, girls like guys that play music. And all, there was a lot of incentive <laughs> to, to stay with the music thing. But, um, but I just, I, 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 lo I love music. I always have. So mm -hmm. that, that's, it's really at the heart of it. It, it was, it was, uh, I, I relate to music. I, I like, you know, uh, you know, just the, the aspects of the musicality aspect of it. But it was an escape too. It was like a refuge. Yeah. So. Although, so and I, I guess you could say desperation is. What <laughs> <laughs> but you know, again, most people um, find it hard to get good enough on one particular instrument to reach a professional. I find that level. to be true. Um, <laughs> and yet you you kept pursuing you know multiple uh, instruments and yeah was it just the desire to have that much more of a color palette open to you when you were creating things you, you could look at it like that it was just i really just had uh you know it, it was it, it was a, a a fun thing for me to to try to learn these other instruments and different things and to get better on all. I'm still working at it. And one thing, uh, some some things, you know, happen where p people they'll come up to me at shows and say, "God, you're just such a natural. It looks so easy," or what, and things like that. And I'm thinking, in my mind, I'm going, "I don't know if I'm a natural. <laughs> I feel like I worked pretty hard for the chops mm. I have and for on all the instruments. And I practice. I've always practiced probably more than anybody." Else that I know, any other musicians, hmm. I, I've always, but in, but mainly because I like it, I like doing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm lucky in that way that I, you know, that I like to to work at it. 
And um, so and I've been lucky in so many ways, and that's one of them. Is it's like to me, it's not like oh, I got to work on that. It's like man, I can't wait to mm-hmm. try to get a little better <laughs> today. Also, you know, because you often read about musicians, and you know, maybe they there was one that they loved to emulate, and they're like, oh, I want to be the best at this, mm-hmm. but. From everything I've read, you seem to have always had this idea of, I want to be utilitarian. I want to Mm -hmm. be someone that can adapt to whatever the situation needs. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's something, you know, some of my favorite players and and some of my favorite music is not necessarily the technically greatest, you know, players like the greatest classical musician or jazz musician or whatever it might be. I like George Harrison. He, he's not necessarily the greatest guitar player that ever lived, but he always played stuff that reinforced the, all the values of the song. Somehow he always found something that really worked. So that's something that I've always tried to gravitate towards too, no matter, you know, I try to work on technical skills as well, but it's always important to, I think, to keep the bigger picture in mind, the goal of the music, the ultimate, you know, the story you're trying to tell or mm-hmm. the emotion you're trying to evoke. So that's that's an important aspect of it. But I but I w- as far as emulating or copying or having idols, one of my early idols cuz I growing up in California with the country music scene in California. I grew up playing country music. That's mm-hmm. all I heard till the Beatles came out really. And so one of my idols my was Joe Mafis who was known as the king of strings and he was a guy that could play great guitar and then pick up the fiddle and play a great fiddle and play banjo and play mandolin and mm. play bass and play he could play just everything and so he was an inspiration so I was like wow he you can actually do that mm-hmm. well I gotta work I gotta if I'm gonna be a real musician I should try to do that and Don Rich was another one who was a great fiddler and a great guitar player mm. and a great singer too yeah but um, so I did have uh, you know, some role models for mm-hmm. sure. It wasn't like, a, you know, just because I liked doing it too, but there were guys that inspired me to do it. So, And then what determines what you gravitate toward for a song? Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, I think, you know, the, all the practice and, and working on the technical aspects of music is so that when you're really trying to do, like, work on a piece of music and get... Uh, pull together a part for a song that you don't have to think about that, that your your instincts guide you. So it, it's, a, it's, it's sort of an instinctual thing, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. At least for me, my I just, I try to not think, <laughs> really. I mean, it's more like, what what's going to feel right here? Mm-hmm. When, like on Alice and by Elvis Costello, he would sing a line, I would play a, a lick. I was responding, it was a conversation, you mm. know. Yeah. Um, that's part of music, and uh, so and, and again to, to talk about a guy like George Harrison always played something that made the song better. You know? mm-hmm. Even if it, was, you know, it didn't matter if it was complicated or simple, it had something to do with the song. And so I try to try to find that instinct <laughs> or, or get get in tune with it. You know, yeah, as part of the process. And and speaking of, what did you what did you learn from all that time working with Elvis Costello? Oh wow. I learned that I, I better work harder on my lyrics. <laughs> but first of all, he's such a great lyricist. You know, mm-hmm. he has, you know, he knows how to use the language. It's like, you know, almost like he's English or something. <laughs> uh, to understand the English language, um, which is a foreign language for us right. Americans. 
Well, so George Bernard Shaw, the two people divided two. by a common language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but with Elvis, yeah, it was uh, it was inspiring as a, the songwriting aspect was mm-hmm. inspiring, and he also, you know, he's a guy for all Hall is his intellect. There's a lot of emotion there, a lot of feel, and that's a, what a great combination if you if you can get that. Mm-hmm. Get those things going together. You know that's a that's pretty cool in music too. There's it, but it's not like there's one formula that makes music work, and that's another thing that keeps it interesting for me. Yeah, trying I try to learn from Elvis. I try to learn from every session I've ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, keep my eyes and ears open and pay attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but I mean Elvis obviously no slouch of a guitar player in his mm-hmm. own right. Oh yeah, no he well like like the My Aim Is True album. <clears throat> you know, when we were cutting that in the little eight-track studio in London, Elvis was sing- singing the lead vocals. There, most I think most, if not all, of the lead vocals on the finished product are the live lead vocals. While we were tracking, while he was playing the rhythm guitar parts, hmm. it's a live album. Okay. Nick Lowe did, would not let me punch in a note. There's not one punched-in note on the whole thing. Hmm. It's it's probably more live than any album that's been called a live album in the last thirty years. Yeah. And I'm not joking when I say that. It really is. And so, yeah, he's good. His, his parts, he's, there again, he, you know, he knew what he wanted to say and how he wanted to try to put it across. And the, the, his, his rhythm parts and his, obviously his vocals, I mean, that's the foundation of those tracks. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and the, there again, we just rehearsed them a little bit and then went into the studio and there it was. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, speaking of what you've done, a, a lot of producing work. You've done a lot of engineering work. I'm curious, how has that influenced what you do as a musician? Um, you know, it, it, some of this goes back to my early days when it was like all of a sudden, you know, like I say, hey, let's get that guy in our band, the McVie kid or whatever. You know, <laughs> and I was always the youngest guy for a long time. That is not. The case anymore, <laughs> but but for a long time I was, and I, and I started getting hired to do recording sessions, and and I noticed pretty early on it's like, hey, how come I sound so much better when I work with that engineer at that studio than when I go with my same gear? I'm the same guy, and I'm kind of playing my style. Mm-hmm. I sound better over there than over here. I started paying attention to what the engineers did. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait a minute, this part is really important too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how it finally comes across. So I started paying attention to the engineering early on and um, realized that was important. And the role of producers, like to me, there's, you know, every producer works a little differently, of course. But in general, like to, in my mind, what a good producer does is takes and helps helps the song and, and the artist Helps it all to achieve its, you know, the, as much of its potential as possible. Mm-hmm. To make it as good as possible. And it's, it's, there's not like one right or proper way to do that. An example being the Elvis Costello thing with Nick Lowe producing. It was all live. It was totally real. No punching in. No fixing. Mm-hmm. Goal was not perfection. The goal was feel. And uh, at the same time, Clover, we were working with Mutt Langham. Who yeah, is legendary. an absolute perfectionist? Yeah, and he's great. I mean, the most successful producer ever, possibly. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Clover, we're, we have the distinction of being his only failure. I mean, uh, <laughs> did I say that? Well, pretty much. But uh, but we were working with Mutt, who was great, and I totally admire him. And look mm-hmm. look at his success. 
But both of those things worked. The Niccolo approach with, with Elvis, which was a lot kind of like what I'd experienced working with Van Morrison, who would pick the take based on how he thought which, what, which one felt the best overall. Okay, yeah. And stuff. So it was all this more of a feel based and let's get this all really sorted out. Yeah. And um, so there's not just one right way. And I've, that's another thing I've tried to learn. I've been lucky enough to work with enough producers to see there's not just one way to produce a record. And yet it's interesting to hear you say that, that Mutt is a, a very technical producer, mm -hmm. very, you know, all right, right. this specifics, if only because some of his best-known works has been like ACDC albums, right. which uh, were all about just raw he energy and feel. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't, he's, he's su such a great producer and so smart, he knows how to get feel, too. Mm -hmm. but, but, he, but in his case, he's also good at, he, well, he, a lot of the records he's produced are the best records by those groups. If you take him, when he produced the Cars, who had made some great records, all of a sudden it's like just a whole other thing with these great songs and Foreigner, mm -hmm. and with it, Foreigner Four, and it's like waiting for a girl like you. Well, they'd never done something like that before, and these incredible things that he would bring, and they still sounded like, still sounded like Foreigner, still sounded like the Cars, mm -hmm. still sounds like ACDC, but it's like. It's, if it isn't their absolute best work, it certainly is something along those lines. It's, it's a, you know, it's up, yeah. right up there, and that's how Mutt is. So, uh, but he is definitely a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, it makes me wonder what's what's the key to walking the line as a producer between uh, guiding and influencing to. I don't know, maybe overstepping or even hijacking the sound. Yeah, right? well, that is a very good question. And if there was a single answer to it, <laughs> you know, a, you, one could produce by formula. Yeah. And that doesn't really happen either. Even the guys that you may, maybe you think, well, that guy produces a certain way, still, there. I think any producer, especially the good ones, they're still, t whoever, whatever the artist is, they have to adapt and try to figure out what is the best way to get to the best of this. Mm -hmm. You know, you, I think part of being a good producer is to be adaptable too. So it's not like, but, so it, but it's a hard, it, it would be very easy to be too controlling or, or to not, you know, maybe be involved enough even. Or, or you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a, there is a, there's probably a, a you know, a, a kind of a right balance in every case and it's probably a little different in every case. So it's a, there again, it's always, uh, it's like, well, how do you find the right guitar for it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it, it just depends on the song and the mood of the day and a lot of things, you know, where mm -hmm. the planets line up. <laughs> yeah, you just know it when you hear it. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of it is about intent and you've got to always try, try to do the best. So. Mm -hmm. And then if you fail, at least you can say you tried. <laughs> And, you know, it's interesting because reading up on you, you do have this very technical side uh, of you, you know. I, I, uh, and I, I say this with uh, utmost respect when I would consider you a full-on geek as far as that goes. <laughs> I kind you of know, know, yeah. Between Guilty. the, the, <laughs> the okay. engineering and the producing and, yeah. and also coding and computer work and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And yet, like I saw some interviews you did where you made a very passionate argument 
to set boundaries when it came to technology right. and and creation of music, recording of music. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, these two sides are, are are within you. Are they like diametrically opposed, or do they kind of dovetail nicely together with you? Well, that there again, you have to seek the balance. I think, and it's like one of my standard jokes, and I have many. People that know me, you know, I, I wear out my jokes. And one of my standards is, well, the technology is there. Let's abuse it. I mean, use it. <laughs> and and there is that line between using it and abusing it. And to me, like recording uh, the with the computer, you know, based recording uh, approach is such a boon because I don't have to go out there and tweak the 24 track every day before the session. Which I was the guy that had to do that. Mm. Those are not the good old days to me. Yeah. And and degaussing the machine and posing these gigantic two inch tape reels that are really heavy and bulky and cumbersome and you yeah. get three songs on a reel and right. that's it. <laughs> there there are a lot of there's a lot of downside to some of the old technology. And I, and there again though, I'm not down on it. Mm-hmm. I'm not and I'm not saying there's one right way, but I I think that's where as individuals we have to seek what seems right to us and works best for whatever the project might be. Mm. And uh, to me, I, I'm, you know, again, I'm a, an advocate of the technology, but there is, I see people that are, are misusing it, in my opinion. You mm-hmm. know, there, there shouldn't be people having success in the world of what's called music or the music industry or whatever, however you want to you know, uh, designate it. There should not be people having success there that can't sing or write or play an instrument. Mm-hmm. They, they can't do music, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's happening. Some yeah. of the biggest artists are people that, in my opinion, have no business doing it. Right. You know? Although I, I will say, you know, I've heard enough stories of some of them when they go into the live arena, mm-hmm. don't cut it because you know what you can what you can uh, uh, yeah. get down to the molecular level in the studio. You know, mm-hmm. is not going to teach you how to hold a crowd yeah right well and that says you know so it's it's kind of uh well it's it's always evolving and it's always changing and it's changing pretty fast in a lot of cases you know with the the way that uh technology goes and and how it's used and implemented and and how how the end listeners receive the product and everything else so the whole interaction from the, the the conceptualization of what's supposed to be a musical idea <laughs> to how it ends up with the public has changed so much in, you know, over the years, uh, for, certainly from when I was getting started. That I, I'm, not, you know, quite honestly, in a lot of ways, I am a geek, but I'm also I feel pretty out of the loop in a lot of ways. Like, well, where is this really headed? What's going on now? Mm-hmm. And uh, my hope is, though, because of my own prejudices as as a musician that we don't lose the actual playing, people playing real instruments, people that can actually sing, singing, yeah. that can sing in tune and everything without yeah. auto-tune or uh, any of the, all those artificial devices. Um, I'm hoping that, that real music will not just die away completely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think an evidence of this is um, the album Southbound, uh, which came out a few years back, which was these uh, uh, Dewey Brothers songs uh, mm-hmm. being re-recorded, re- kind of reimagined with all these great <laughs> country artists. Right, um, that was a fun project. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and 
it's interesting to hear them weigh in, and, and these are all guys, you know, like uh, Brad Paisley, who has, you know, uh, amazing skills and you know, mm -hmm. in, in terms of uh, songwriting and, and, you know, finding a, a good guitar part and things like that. Right. Um, but that makes me wonder, with that project, was there anything on that album that, as a result of that, made you look at a song differently? Um... Yeah, I, I would say so. Actually, I mean, we kind of, we kind of entering into the, that process, you know, for Pat and Tom and myself and with Michael McDonald, he was part of the project too. Mm -hmm. I think for all of us, it was let's try to stay out of the way as much as possible. Let's see what 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 these people, what their ideas might are might mm -hmm. be, and what, what they can bring to the table. Let's see what their ideas are. So we tried to let it um, kind of like have an organic growth process. And we did, and it was really cool, and it did give me some insight. And I like a song like South City Midnight Lady when, the, uh, you know, Dan Dugmore came out. I, it was like we had, we could play all the instruments if we wanted. We did that. We've done it before. Right, right, We've been right. doing it live for years. Yeah. But Dan Dugmore, whom I've known since my Clover days, since, you know, going way back, came in to play Steel, and we had some fun conversations. And that, to hear what he did, now he's playing on most of the first half of the song, and then I take over on Pedal Steel later in the song. Yeah. And just the, it was really cool to just kind of interact with a different player, and I, I was able to tell him, which I, I don't think I'd ever gotten a chance to before, that like his playing on Linda Rostas' Blue Bayou is one of my favorite steel parts of all time, yeah. you know. And it's just, so, and that is an example of playing something perfect for the song, mm -hmm. so perfect. And um, so, it, to get to work with guys like that, 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 and to hear their ideas, it was really fun, mm -hmm. really fun. Yeah, it, it reminds me, and worry, I've brought this up too many times in interviews, but uh, talking about guitarists and and I saw an interview with Brad Paisley where he was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, he's having a conversation with John Mayer and, and mm. talking about a guy that they both admired was, was Eric Clapton. Mm -hmm. And he said a reason that they both gravitated toward him is that you can sing Clapton's guitar parts. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I would right. say, especially with the classic Doobie Brothers tracks, it's the same thing. You'll have people <laughs> singing the riff, uh -huh. you know. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I, well, one of, I was talking about my standard jokes. Hello, people camera. <laughs> Here's another John McPhee standard joke. <laughs> I have a joke about guitar parts because I work, I've worked so hard on, you know, skills and things like that and mm -hmm. different styles and, and so some of these guitar players, I go, you know, I can play circles around that guy. But I can't get to that bullseye in the center. <laughs> I'm playing circles right. around it. <laughs> so there's something to be said for simplistic parts. Mm -hmm. And another reason I was talking about George Harrison, and it's just these parts that it's like, wow, that makes the song, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's not always. It's not like you want the the you know, uh, Paco de Lucia, the greatest flamenco guitarist, or gypsy jazz player, or a classical guy, or to come in and play the guitar for it, you want something that, you know, like like the start of a Credence song or something. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those hooks. Right. There's something to be said for that. And yeah. It's, it's not always easy to get there. Mm -hmm. I can play circles around that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, in terms of, of studio work, um, I, I thought it was funny because I, I read it in one of your other interviews. You said, quote, 
my wife made me promise to focus on doing a solo album. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Number one, yeah. I thought, you know, wow, it's not often you have a spouse that goes, my husband really should work more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't, it's not necessarily working more. It's uh, like, don't take all these other sessions. Set aside some time and work on your stuff because okay. you've never done it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, in Southern Pacific, it, to some degree, it was, it wasn't a solo project, but I, I was the main songwriter. I wrote most of our hits. Mm-hmm. I ended up being, through attrition, like a lead vocalist on a lot of our material and some of our hits <laughs> and everything. But I, I'm a guy, I tend to shy away from the spotlight because it scares me. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't really want the spotlight. I like being just part of the team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my wife's point was really not work more at all. It was like, hey, don't just, you know, take, because uh, when I'm off the road, I do so much session work. I'm always busy. She says, maybe just don't take every single session. <laughs> work on your own stuff and do your solo project. Mm-hmm. So I've got a bunch of songs I've written and things, and I just never get around to it. And part of it is because I'm scared. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I need somebody prodding me in. Marcy, my wife, has, has prodded me. And mm-hmm. I've started. I've been working on it. And yet you're, you guys have also been working on a new Doobie Brothers album. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it difficult, challenging to mentally go back and forth between Doobie Brothers and your solo pieces? Um, not really. Okay. I, not not. I don't think so. I mean, for one thing, it, it's 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 a, it's kind of more of the same as far as I'm always working on. I'm working on the Doobies, but then I do a session. I did in the last few years. I've done a couple of tours with Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles, and mm-hmm. I played on. His most recent solo album, although he's working on a new one now. But I, you know, I've worked with Timothy a bit, and I do other things, and I occasionally go out with Elvis Costello, or you know, I do different things anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just another different thing, sort of. Yeah. So it's it's a little it's a little bit like that mm-hmm. anyway. And that also makes me wonder because, God, reading about you, you have this insane work ethic. <laughs> Well, again, I like music. I mean, it's like, what else would I rather be doing? You know, mm-hmm. maybe surfing, but otherwise, like, you know, hey, I I love telling music, so mm-hmm. it's it's not a chore. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, still, I mean, what you guys are doing, and you know, the tours, and and which mm-hmm. you know, lately, have just keep getting bigger and bigger. Well, the, the, the band, too. I mean, not just myself. I mean, maybe that's what you meant, really, too. But the Doobie Brothers, there's always been a, a pretty workmanlike. Uh, ethic mm-hmm. to, the, to the group. We're not. We don't consider ourselves rock stars. It's not about that. We we like to play. Yeah. We we, li- we actually like each other, which is kind of a miracle for dinosaur bands. <laughs> and uh, so our work ethic as a group is pretty good. I would say. Yeah. Well, that also reminds me because you, I read another interview where you said we're not rock stars. We're mm-hmm. musicians. Right. How do you define the difference between the two? I think uh, you know there. Are, in general, a rock star to me is like that's what people think you are, mm-hmm. or you know that's an outside perception. Like to the public, that, that guy's in a band or he's an artist that's uh, famous, mm-hmm. sells a lot of records or whatever, and all that has this degree of success. That's a rock star. That's the perception from the outside. But there are some people that think they're rock stars. <laughs> and so there's that. And that's, I guess, what I was addressing when I said we, start, we, we just want to be musicians. We're not mm-hmm. into this rock star thing at all. It's like, hey, yeah. we, you know, 
we, it's about the music. And that's something, before I joined the Doobies, something I always admired about the band. I always felt like, yeah, that's, that's a band that seems like they must be just focused on the music, because that's, listen to the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No pun intended. Well, right. maybe, maybe it was intended. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's always been an element for this group. It's, it's been, the focus has been the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, at the time we're recording this, just 24 hours or so ago, you guys announced that next year you're doing a 50th anniversary tour. Right. Michael McDonald is coming back to join you for this 50th Correct. anniversary tour. It. We're just hoping he doesn't wise up in time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's really great. We. Yeah. Know, uh, I'm excited about it myself. Mm. It was like well, and it was like, honestly, I mean. I, when we, uh, the other night, what you're talking about, we played a show at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, and that's when the announcement was made, more or less. And Michael came to join us for our encore, and we, we played Taking It to the Streets with Michael. And at Soundcheck, we were running through it with Michael, and I'm telling you, as soon as he starts playing and singing, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm moved. It's, it's a big deal to me, you know. I am part of the audience. <laughs> mm. He's amazing, and it's really... I love having him there. We, it's, there's never been, you know, we used to read these stories like in you know, magazines and newspapers about this guy hates that guy or they don't get along like this or that. Yeah. That was never true. And we've always loved Michael. And, and, and we've done shows with him from time to time through the years. This is the first like major touring type thing, though, commitment yeah. with Michael as part of the band and doing mm-hmm. it all together uh, in a long, long time. But... Uh, but we've always been friends. We stay in touch. We do shows together. We do things, you know. Yeah. We did the Southbound Project. Michael was part of that. Um, so, but this this 50th anniversary, it's kind of a big deal. And it happens oddly. And believe me, I wish I could say we planned this. <laughs> but we're actually nominated to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for the first time. Yeah. And uh, so there's kind of a lot of... Things kind of clicking right now, it seems like, and mm. they're all good things. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you take the Rock Hall potential nomination in stride? I mean, it seems uh, like... They've, a- they've made that pretty easy. <laughs> 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 well, because we've had to... Well, yeah, and I've had to, but I mean... Is, well, I'll say this about it. Any award uh, system like that, like whether it's the Oscars, or the Grammys, yeah. or anything or an art, you know, award yeah. or whatever it is, there's a certain amount or a large amount of subjectivity involved and there's a certain arbitrariness to how the choices are made and everything. And so you have to accept that. And we've had to accept it. We've been eligible for 25 years. Yeah. You're not eligible for 25 years after your first release. We've been eligible for 25 years and it's the first time we've made it to the ballot. <laughs> so we've had plenty of practice at going... That doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> so, so taking it in stride, yes. you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat braced for. <laughs> right. Well, you're, you're, you're and, calmer. And if, if we don't get, we, there's, hey, we're just nominated. We might not get in. So yeah. believe me, we are kind of like calming our little selves down all the time. Well, the, you're better than the people online, many of whom are very pissed that it took this long for you to guys even make the ballot. Well, um, you know, at, at the Ryman show, yeah. I have a good friend, a guy named Rob Arthur, who works with Peter Frampton. He's Peter oh. Frampton's keyboard player, musical director. Peter Frampton's not in. 
When yeah. I found that out, I went. I, I only found that out sometime in the last year or so. I went. If he, I, it made me feel better. I said, "Man, we are in good company." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hate to say it, because Peter, I love Peter. You know, yeah. it's like, then it's, it's like, what do you have to do? You know, and mm-hmm. one of my expressions, and this this can end up on the cutting room floor. Who do we have to fuck? Yeah, I mean, it's like that. It's like, what the heck? You know? Yeah. If Peter Frampton can't get in, what's he had to do? He's been in groups that are legendary. He's had been had the biggest solo album of all time for a long, long yeah. time. He, he's gotten Grammys in recent years for his instrumental work and has played with some of the best players on the planet. Got the respect from of everybody in the music industry. Yeah. So why why is he not in? What do you have to do? What is what what are the criteria? Yeah. Therefore, you know, so I I, I can't. And I don't mean to be ragging on you Rock and Roll Hall of Fame people. Right. <laughs> it's not about that. I'm just saying, no matter how fair you try to make it, there's going to be an arbitrary, inevitable, you know, leaving out. Yeah. That that certain, plenty of people will find objectionable, no matter who it is that's being left, being left out. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, well, that's why I wondered about taking it in stride because there is. Somebody told me Tina Turner's not in yet, and if that's true, that's insane. Oh. I th- I thought she was in, but I could be wrong. I thought so, but a lot of people thought we were. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought Peter Frampton was. Yeah. So who knows? Anyway, right. But that just shows you how how you know, like I say, arbitrary. Yeah. Maybe the right. But word. that's to me that's the challenge of taking it in stride. It's like, well, do you, you want to be you know uh, f- flattered by the acknowledgement, but not put too much well, weight take, on it, and yeah. you know. Uh, well, taking it in stride, keeping it in perspective. Mm-hmm. That's what allows one to. You know, take it in stride. We either get in or we don't, and we know uh, the music speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. The, we've had a great career. We've had a great run. People like us. We could hardly get any luckier, and it would be icing on the cake. But it's you know, we've got plenty of icing already. <laughs> yeah, which which brings me back to uh, next year's anniversary tour and, mm-hmm. and and getting back together with Michael McDonald. You know, this is obviously something that it seems to me every band want, it wants. They want to be able to, you know, uh, uh, still have large groups of people want to see them perform live, mm-hmm. you know, decades down the road. Um, and yet, I'm assuming there's only so much you can do to, to make that happen, to have control over whether that happens or not. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. what does a band have control over that they should focus on in terms of having that kind of longevity? Uh, keep getting older. Okay. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, now staying alive helps. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, but, uh, really, honestly, I think uh, it, maybe I don't really know the answer, but in our case, I think, and for I, probably for a lot of the people that, that have had the kind of good fortune that we've had, that people still want to hear us, Mm-hmm. After decades and everything, I think it's to keep you know keep your uh, keep things in perspective. Work hard at it. You know, try to be the best you can be every night. You know, people pay a lot of money for these tickets. They go through agony just driving to the venue, parking at the venue is agony, getting into the venue is agony. Then they got to pay exorbitant prices for anything they're buying at the venue, whether it's you know beverages or <laughs> merchandise yeah. or anything else. Right. They go through a lot to come to our, these shows and be supportive of acts like us. We owe it to those people to be as good as we can be. So we need to take care of our health, and we need to 
practice, warm up, work hard on the music, and keep the focus on the music. And other than that, I don't know. I mean, I look at guys like Tony Bennett that go out and just deliver every night. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's, that's what we have to do. We owe it. Yeah. And then how would you say you guys have, have changed? In what ways have you guys grown throughout the years as a band? Old. Oh, no. You're right. <laughs> Back to that. Sorry. Right. I'm not age-obsessed. Right. But uh, we, uh, I, well, you know, another one of my standards is yeah. we've learned a few things not to do along the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and part of that is, you know, t- taking care of your health. Mm-hmm. You know, without that, you can't, you know, it's, it's demanding to get out and do a musical performance. Yeah. And the travel is the hardest part. It, it can wear you down. And um, so we, we've matured. And I think in, in part of a, a cool dividend is I think we appreciate it more now than ever. Mm. Like how darn lucky we are. And I look at the, you know, we're talking about this. It was like, this is decades later. This is our 50th anniversary. It's like when the Beatles came out in 1964. Mm-hmm. If you go back 50 years to like 1914 or something, <laughs> yeah. who was selling out shows in 1964 when the Beatles were coming out yeah. that was big in 1914? Pretty much nobody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and I, you know, when, when Elvis, Elvis Presley hit and the Beatles and all that stuff, all these incredible musicians, these big band guys, it was hard for them. That, their, their thing didn't survive the way our, our, this classic rock. We are a lucky generation to have our fans stay with us through all this, all the decades, yeah. all the time changes and the, you know, the sociological changes, everything else, techni- technology, all this stuff that's just been happening and moving along. The world just keeps on spinning, spinning, spinning. We we still can go out and people want to hear us. It's amazing, and those some of those big band guys, I really feel for them that they weren't so lucky, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's another thing that you know I think we've all learned, or that we feel certainly, is how fortunate we are to be able to still do this. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty amazing. And then in terms of, you know, it's interesting because you talked about, you know, all these people, all these other musicians that you've known and have remained connected with over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had quite a unique vantage point for the career of Huey Lewis in the news, <laughs> having <laughs> yes. having been there right at the beginning and, and mm-hmm. you know, and even, you know, played on their albums throughout and such. And, and mm-hmm. so I'm curious, from your perspective... Are there ways that maybe that band is underappreciated? Oh, I think they absolutely are. There's a band that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and God knows when that'll happen. But it, you know, but in general, it's like. But Huey's made some pretty good jokes about it. Like uh, there was the one was the one who says, "Well, the, you guys are hugely popular with the public, but the critics don't seem to care that much for you." And, and Huey said something to the effect of. What are you talking about? To them, we're the biggest thing since Toto. <laughs> <laughs> Something along those lines, yeah. which I thought was so great. But, uh, but yeah, they're, I think they're, they're such a good band. I mean, I, Billy Gibson, the drummer, I mean, mm-hmm. I've tried to hire him for sessions, like, probably, I don't know, at least half a dozen, maybe a dozen different times, and it's never worked out. Yeah. I love the way he plays. They're such a, you know, 
the the, the whole band is like there's a, a just a great skill and feel combination going on there that with even it's, it's, it's ironic to say you know they're underappreciated with the huge success they've had, mm-hmm. but in a lot of ways I think they are. I don't think they've gotten the the critical acclaim and 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 the awards and things like that 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 really I think they've earned. And uh, another one of my standard jokes, <laughs> I made their career. <laughs> <laughs> by getting by leaving Clover yeah. <laughs> and getting out of the way yeah. with all my hillbilly, my country playing, because those are my instincts. Mm-hmm. And I've always, in retrospect, I went, you know, I was always dragging Clover too far country. <laughs> and when I, as soon as I got out of the way yeah. and it evolved into Huey Lewis and the News, they were able to focus and find this really great <laughs> combination of elements. Still, still a lot of musical elements, but I was in the way. Huh. I was I was derailing it. Okay. So that's my little, you know, twisted way of trying to take credit for the success right. of Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> and yet, a couple of years ago, you were working on reworking some of that material. The early Clover stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm still working on that. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to make Alex Call happy. <laughs> he approved of a bunch of mixes and mastering and everything and then had second thoughts, so I'm... In my spare time, and now around my solo project, I'm trying to finish that up. But it's really great. And Huey's on it, playing some of his best harmonica playing. Underappreciated, his harmonica playing. Mm. Perfect example of part of what Huey Lewis and the News have to offer. That He gets overlooked. He should be on the list of really great harmonica players. And maybe because he's got such a big personality and he's doing the lead vocals too and everything else, it's easy to get distracted. But his harmonica playing is just fantastic mm. and anyway on this clover project he did some incredible harmonica playing and uh so i do want to get that out to the public it's mm-hmm. right now it's been sort of available to buy a, a first draft version through mill valley records ah, <laughs> okay. <Valley> music <laughs> but that's the only outlet in the world okay so far but and it'll... and also qe plays on the southbound album if you want that's true if you want yeah, to i dragged him album. into that yeah because <laughs> i am a fan he's you know he's the guy on long train run on yeah. that 